Welcome to Made for Another World podcast, the season finale. Season finale. With Aaron Alvarado and me, Jacob Simmons. Each week, we have distinct and stately conversations regarding Christian books, stories, songs, and sermons with the hopes that we'll walk away a little homesick for the world that is to come. Stately. <laughs> distinct. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> this is episode 15, 12 Faithful Men, edited by Colin Hansen and Jeff Robinson. Colin and Jeff serve as editors for the Gospel Coalition, uh, at least at the time of this podcast, and for this book, uh, and for this book, they also served as editors, is what I meant by that. <laughs> Colin is an adjunct professor at Beeson Divinity School, where he also co-chairs the advisory board, and Jeff is director of news and information at Southern Seminary, and he and his wife, Lisa, have four children. For a little bit of information about the book, we wanted to read from the book's website. Most pastors know when they enter ministry, they will spend time helping others through times of suffering. What they don't often realize, though, is that they too will suffer. Caught off guard, many of them end up deeply hurt and quit the ministry, deciding perhaps they misunderstood God's call or they simply don't have what it takes. But church history is filled with compelling stories of men who were profoundly afflicted in ministry and yet persevered faithfully until death. This volume contains the inspiring stories of 12 faithful men who endured great suffering for the cause of Christ. We hope pastors and ministry leaders, as well as those who support them, will find in this collection encouragement to run the race with endurance. And uh, it's the same way with our the first episode of this season with 12 Extraordinary Women. Uh, we won't get to all of them, but we'll start with the first uh the intro to the book, what's the foreword? And uh, it's by Ray Ortland. It says, as a young pastor, I entered the ministry prepared for the rejoicing, but not for the suffering. When the inevitable buffetings and sorrows came, especially in the form of rejection, I thought, well, I don't deserve this. And maybe you've thought that too. And while it is a valid thought, it is not profound. As the Lord led me further along, the following verses, like so many throughout scripture, became more meaningful to me. Luke ten three. I'm sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. John 16, 2. Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Colossians 1, 24. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. The Lord did not recruit pastors on false pretenses. He told us what to expect. We will suffer for his sake. But for that very reason, because it is for him, our sufferings are a grace, a privilege, an honor he is giving us. We're following him down a path already stained with his priceless blood. When we realize this, a second thought breaks upon us. I really don't deserve this. And that is profound, and it leads to profound rejoicing. The privilege of pastoral ministry is Jesus. Serving Jesus standing for Jesus, representing Jesus, laying down our lives for Jesus, and through it all, knowing Jesus more deeply. As my dad, the best pastor I've ever known, told me on his dying day, ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. Colin Hansen and Jeff Robinson have gathered together uh, godly pastors to tell us stories, true stories, of pastoral suffering with rejoicing that bears fruit to last forever. We pastors of today can never say the Lord is asking too much of us. The pastors we read of here proved that Jesus is worth it all, even to our hearts, full rejoicing forever. 
Um, I think it's helpful to begin with something like that because it gives you a a little bit of insight into pastoral ministry. You know, it's not necessarily a, um, while it has extreme joys, it also has extreme suffering. Yeah. It's, it's very high highs and very low lows. You get to see um, some of the most amazing transformational work that God does, but you also get to see people on their deathbeds and um, experience some of the uh, some of the affliction that people walk through, all while experiencing those very same things yourself. You see transformation, but then you also you, you suffer. Um, and so I think it was helpful to begin with something like that to point out uh, there are a lot of misconceptions. It looks like, oh man, it'd be kind of an easy job. Um, looks like it's just happy go lucky all the time. You know, you just, you speak publicly and then you're done. And, um, but it has, uh, from what we'll especially read, uh, there's a call to pick up your cross and, uh, for, for, for those in pastoral ministry, it's sometimes literal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's, uh, abundantly clear already that this book is not a, Hey, if you're a struggling pastor, Here's how to get through your struggles. Here's how to get through the suffering. I mean, it, in a sense it is, but it's not a, hey, you shouldn't be suffering. Here's five steps to get through that and live your best ministry now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's not what this is going. And he, uh, Ortland ends, uh, what does he say? That we pastors of today can never say the Lord is asking too much of us. Like, Jesus is worth it all. Like, yeah. that we, we can't say he's asking too much. All that he's given for us as our high priest, who are we to say, uh, I can't give you this much, Jesus. Like, right. You gave your life. I Anything short of me giving my own life is, is not too much. Right. And even giving my own life is not too much for yeah. you. So it's going to be good. Yeah. Well, that makes me think, though, too, that uh, two things. One, you've got um, highly practical advice for just all of life, even outside of pastoral ministry. Yeah. God never asks too much of us. Right. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and then, but secondly, it also gives kind of this perspective of, um, there, there is a unique suffering that, that pastoral pastors go through, um, that I I think is helpful for for me as a church member to see so that, uh, like I want to, I want to be honest and genuine and, and, and authentic in what I say, but I also want to be, uh, what we've talked about, uh, a, a low, a low maintenance church member. Yeah. You know, I want to, um, maybe I don't tell them every single thing <laughs> that's gone wrong with the week. Maybe I sift through that a little bit and see, maybe I should work on that one my own self before I, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the first one that we get into, uh, is, I don't know if you've heard of him. I hadn't heard of him before this, but his name's Paul. He was an apostle. Hmm. Yeah. Apostle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Jeff Robinson wrote this chapter and he said, if you send a resume to a search committee to be considered for, pa- for a pastoral opening, what types of information would it contain? No doubt it would detail all the positive ministry experience you have logged. If you had served as a pastor in one place for a few years, you'd put that first, particularly if things went fairly well. If you worked as a youth minister while in college, you'd put that down. 
If you taught a Bible class or served a short-term mission stint overseas, that would certainly make the list. You would include the names and contact information for several people likely to give a friendly assessment of your qualifications, character, and background. Your aim would be to make your make certain your strengths stand out in bold relief so you would appear, on paper at least, better qualified than the other candidates. A band of super apostles forced the Apostle Paul to brandish his ministry credentials late in his second letter to the church at Corinth. Thus, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul provided his pastoral resume, boasting in a rather lengthy set of qualifications that authenticated him as an apostle called and inspired by God. What made Paul's ministry vitae? Uh, So this is from 2 Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul's ministry qualifications read like the diary of an Auschwitz survivor. Imprisonment on false charges, flogging, starvation, shipwrecked, hard labor, robbed, sleepless nights. All things that portray him as a weak man. Why? Because as Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians in chapter 12, he was called to suffer. The gospel's work moves forward and the church gets built on the tracks of suffering which demonstrate God's power working through the conduit of human frailty. When I'm tempted to throw a pity party over some trifling anguish I'm facing in ministry, I go to Paul's account here to put it in perspective. I will never suffer this way for Christ. Compared to this, all is well. It is clear from Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians and in other epistles that he expected all faithful ministers to experience some level of affliction. In 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul commanded that Timothy, his son in the faith, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. As a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am called to suffer. Mm. I love this counter-cultural, maybe even counter-pop Christianity image of of ministry qualifications. Like, it's not a, oh, I've done these great things. I mean, just exactly what he just said. Like, it's not a list of your typical resume. It's, I have suffered and suffered and suffered. I can suffer and I can suffer and I can suffer because I know that in my suffering that is when Christ is strong. And it's not a, man, I, I can really, I mean, in a sense it is, as a, as a pastor or, or someone in ministry, like it, it is a, a recognition of your perseverance, but not your perseverance right. you know if, if you're relying on your own perseverance in ministry because as we just read on the the forward the forward all the the scripture that you read there it's you're gonna suffer you're gonna suffer over and over and over and over again and so you have to be ready for that and the only way to be ready for that is to be able to say i can't do that myself uh and it, it's i mean this is reading all those things of uh 
Paul, the great apostle. Uh, is that blasphemy? Should I not say? Should I? <laughs> We're stately and dignified. Yeah, this is right. true. Yeah. Very stately and dignified. <laughs> but I, I just love reading that, and it's like it's so opposite of what you would expect to see from this great man of God who wrote so much scripture, and it's like, right. man, I just. I suffered, I suffered, and I suffered, and I suffered, and here I am, and praise God for it, right? Like, yeah. it's, that's not, that's not what we, not what we are used to hearing a lot, um, and also, honestly, it's not what we want to hear, right? right? Like, I don't want to hear that as part of ministry, as part of a church. I don't like the fact that I'm going to suffer. I don't want to sit here and be like, this is going to happen, but guess what? It is, and it's all for his glory and my good, so let's stick it out, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you don't hear the guy get up at the conference and say, you know, I've been fired from every church I've been a part of. <laughs> never been, never lasted longer than a year because I was thrown out, kicked out and yeah. punched. And you, know, you just don't hear very often. Uh, one thing I thought was very good though, he says the gospel's work moves forward and the church gets built on the tracks of suffering. Mm. And that's, I mean, we see it in, in so many different ways throughout life and, and, and even in Scripture, but um, like it, it moves forward in that human weakness, human, uh, I think he even said frailty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a it's a deeply comforting thing for me, knowing I'm also weak. Yeah. Uh, if, if, there's a, if there's to be any fruit, I need to be a weak man. All right, I got that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if... If there's going to be any fruit, God has to be powerful, and He is. So it's perfect. <laughs> we can do many things. Yeah. Um, but it also reminded me of, uh, like, simply some of the most solid men and women I know uh, have deeply suffered mm. and suffered well, and they have come out of all of this suffering, and they. They, they love God more deeply. They, I mean, it, they're just, there's a, a solidity to them that I don't think makes any sense tangibly, Yeah. but you can sense it mm-hmm. intangibly um, because they, they, they've been through so much and yet they haven't gone anywhere. They're, yeah. they didn't get uh, unchurched or uh, what's like, they didn't deconstruct their faith now because of it. It's, mm. It drew, drew them deeper into that. And so I was, yeah, I love that. Yeah. There's, there's a difference between suffering for Christ and then suffering for, you know, through our, our own, what, what, whatever, because of our failures, shortcomings, whatever, you know, just because I go out and do something stupid, you know, and then I suffer. You know, if I go jump off a cliff and break my legs, well, I'm suffering because I'm an idiot. But when you, there's, there's oh no. My God. Yeah. <laughs> but when my leg heals, I'm not like, man, I'm really glad I did that, you know. But when you suffer for Christ, there's a, there's a sense of purpose to the yeah. suffering as opposed to just I'm healing because I'm a dummy. You know? <laughs> okay, moving on a little bit further. Uh, this one was written by W. Robert Godfrey and Jeff Robinson on Calvin. In 1549, Calvin wrote a touching letter to Madame de la roche Posay, the, uh, the abbess of a convent, pointing out that the primary cause of our trials is a loving God who is more concerned for our Christ-likeness than for our comfort. He counsels in the, in the letter, I understand quite well that in such bondage as you are now, are now 
as you now are, you cannot serve God purely without the rage and cruelty of the wicked rising up immediately against you, and without the fire perhaps being lighted. Howbeit, you must remember that wherever we may go, the cross of Jesus Christ will follow us, even in the place where you may enjoy your ease and comforts. For this is the very way whereby God would make trial of our faith and know whether in seeking after him we've been renouncing self. Beyond faith in a general sense, Calvin looked to certain specific truths and promises of the word of God, namely his faith in Christ and his deep trust in God's providential will to sustain him in his days of trouble. Calvin is famous for his strong teaching on the absolute sovereignty of God in daily providence and in predestination. For Calvin, this doctrine is not abstract or speculative, but intensely practical, as he powerfully expresses in his preference to, the, uh, to his commentary on the Psalms. It says, the Psalms will principally teach and train us to bear the cross. By doing this, we renounce the guidance of our own affections and submit ourselves entirely to God, leaving Him to govern us and to dispose our life according to His will, so that the afflictions which are the bitterest and most severe to our nature become sweet to us, because they proceed from Him. As Christians, our aim must be to grow in confidence in God's good purposes for us in all things so that we can embrace even our worst trials as coming from His fatherly and loving hand. Still, though God is sovereign, we don't always know His will for the future. We're called to depend on a sovereign God as pilgrims and strangers, exiles in this world. I want to... um, I want to know like what the background behind that letter was. Mm. Um, or a little bit more about that, but to say the, the this line, the afflictions which are the bitterest and most severe to our nature become sweet to us because they proceed from Him. Mm. Oh, man, that's good. Mm. The and it's, it's it's true, and so that makes it even more good. Uh, but the. I think it's it's sometimes hard to wrap our heads around it, right? Like I- even a sentence like that, it, mm-hmm. we'd have to sit and think about it for a while. But um, to say, you know, e- even if this is disciplinary, even if this is um, difficult, it's suffering, it's, uh, you know, and I've experienced nothing to, to the likes of what Paul had experienced or anything like that, but... Um, to say, in this Christian life, I've been called to suffer, uh, and any of that suffering either comes, well, it, a sovereign God has uh, ordained it. Mm-hmm. And that is, if that's true, and he does all things for my good, and uh, for the glory of Jesus, then all right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm exactly where I need to be with that, and that's, but it takes a minute to get there. You yeah. know, because <laughs> at first you're like, that means I have to give up everything about myself and and trust in Jesus all over again, and at least that's where my head went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that that line, um, and it's kind of what I was saying a second ago. Like it, it proceeds from Him, so there's there's something to it. There's a value to that suffering, yeah. and like you said, it's it's tricky because uh, how does he say it? So that the afflictions, which are the bitterest and most severe to our nature, become sweet to us. That that doesn't make sense. But then, so it's like, okay, well, how, how do we know that this is true? Like you said, this is true. How do we know? Well, we go to Scripture, and that's where we find that it's true. But also, while we're in Scripture, we see that though he is the one who is sovereign and has designed this suffering for me, he also says, if you're burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. I mean, it through, you continue in Scripture, and you see that 
he's giving you these things to to deal with these sufferings but he also says hey i gave you the suffering while you're suffering <laughs> come to me and i'll take that on for you like how sweet like it's it's crazy like it yeah. just it's which also just confirms that it's it's true and that there's purpose to it yeah. because if the suffering didn't mean anything for us, he'd let us just deal with it on our own, right? I mean, it, we, we, would, we wouldn't do well with it, but right. if it didn't matter, then who cares if we do well with it? But it has a purpose, and he knows that we can't fulfill the suffering, I guess, yeah. in a sense, without him. And if it has a purpose, then he knows that we need him. It's just a, the whole circle, circle of suffering, you know what I mean? Like, oh. Yeah, here's your suffering. There's a reason for it. There's no way you're going to make it by yourself. So just bring it back to me. And I'll help you through it. <laughs> I love it. The circle of suffering. <laughs> put it on the fridge. Put it on the fridge. Okay. Like write it out. Don't put a circle of suffering yeah, on yeah, your yeah. fridge. That'd be yeah. super weird. <laughs> yeah, print it, print it out or something first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this chapter is written by Tony Rose. And it's on John Bunyan. Nice. It says, uh... Some Christian ladies guided Bunyan to the church at which the godly Mr. Gifford was pastor. Bunyan's story is a beautiful picture of the local church being what God intended it to be. From the church at Bedford, Bunyan received pastoral, pastoral care, biblical instruction, and Christian fellowship that led to a sound mind and a sound faith. Grace Abounding, uh, the book, chronicles the parallel between his faith maturing and his mind becoming sound. The Bedford church soon realized Bunyan was gifted to speak the gospel to the human heart. In the beginning of his ministry, he struggled with intrusive thoughts of the worst kind. Doubts still raised their heads and made him stumble. I think his every word was preached as much to himself as to his congregation. He was able to preach boldly, even as strange thoughts and doubts welled up inside of him because he rested on the gospel that was outside of him. The war between godly self-confidence and grueling self-doubt grew hottest in Bunyan when he climbed behind the sacred desk. This is what he wrote. Indeed, I've been sent as one uh, I have been as one sent to them from the dead. I went myself in chains to preach to them in chains and carried that fire in my own conscience that I persuaded them to be aware of. I can truly say when I have been to preach I've gone full of guilt and terror even to the pulpit door and there it hath been taken off. And I've been at liberty in my mind until I've done my work and then immediately even before I could get down the pulpit stairs I've been as bad as I was before, yet God carried me on, but surely with a strong hand, for neither guilt or hell could take me off my work. Bunyan's fight to keep his faith in Christ alone is a model for pastors. Our weaknesses and temptations are reminders that our salvation and our ministry always depend on God, not us. Hmm. Man, this is the, just the one line here in his quote that is like such... Uh, encouragement or comfort for pastors and ministry leaders, and then also a good, um, I don't know, just suggestion or, or guideline or reminder for, for church members. Uh, when Bunyan says, When I have been to preach, I have gone full of guilt and terror even to the pulpit door, and there it hath been, hath been taken off. Like, I feel like a lot of times when the pastor goes up to preach on a Sunday, it's like, dude better have his stuff together. You know what I mean? Like, and to, to some extent, yes, as in, yeah, be prepared to preach the word right. But 
dude needs to hear it just as much as everybody else in the room, right? I mean, there are times where he goes up there full of guilt. Maybe he had a horrible morning. Maybe he sinned all morning long until he got there, and he's preaching not just to the members but to himself as well. And I think that's something as, as members and congregants that we have to be mindful of because not just like for our own good, like, okay, we need to know that you know he's imperfect, obviously, but to to remind ourselves to encourage our, our pastors and our leaders in a way that, man, here you are fighting this good fight for us, shepherding this flock, you know, that you are called to shepherd, but also you're doing it hopefully well, you know, gracefully right, but also while you're also needing the same words that you're giving to everyone. Like, you know, that's, and, and I'm sure you know this more than I do. You've been in the pulpit more than I have. Like, there are probably really tough mornings where it's hard to get up there. But, I mean, there's no, obviously, there's no qualification of, well, okay, Sunday mornings, a pastor must be perfect before they go to the pulpit. Like, well, we're never going to hear another sermon from anybody ever again. Right. But that was so good, though, for him to say, for just, man, go up in terror and guilt. I mean, can you just, I just can, I can see that almost, you know, going up there and there's already a weight to, to presenting the word of God to people. But when you're feeling this terror and guilt within you, oh man. But again, it's not him, you know, I mean, it's, you were just doing what you were called to do. And as long as you're doing it right and it's not your words, but it's the words that are in the Bible, then man, do it, (laughs) you know, and the guilt and terror, like you said, Sometimes it just goes away right there. Yeah. But I thought that was really good. Yeah. Well, and it, it's helpful too for <clears throat> just church membership of, because I can't tell you how often um, a a week has been horrible. I've sinned. And then I think I can't go be around God's people. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm not worthy enough to do that. Uh, and yet that's, that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. Is, is to... <laughs> to come heavy laden, come with that burden mm-hmm. back to, uh, back to God, back to his people. And so, uh, it, it's, it's helpful to see something like this. Like, um, it didn't exclude him. It didn't, you know, but like he even says, like neither guilt nor hell could take me off my work. That should be our mindset with church membership, right? Like n- nothing can, uh, nothing's going to take me away from, doing my duty here, yeah. doing my, my due diligence to, to encourage, to, to be present. And, um, I just love that. I yeah. thought that was very good. Yeah. Oh, and then one line, he said, uh, he was able to preach boldly, even as strange thoughts and doubts welled up inside of him because he rested on the gospel that was outside of him. Man, if I had that mindset <laughs> all the time, cause I, it's insane how often I trust my own feelings mm-hmm. versus what the gospel says is true. And I, yeah. it's silly, but it's, it's what we do. Wait, waiting for <laughs> the other world, you know? Like yeah. I, yeah. <clears throat> Want to be home. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This chapter is written by Peter Beck. It's on Jonathan Edwards. By all appearances, Edwards was destined for greatness. He enjoyed opportunities many pastors longed for. Edwards had the right family name. The most famous preacher of the day hired him to be his associate, heir to a most important pulpit. After just one sermon, he became famous, a published author. His preaching led to revival, a significant renewal of a long-established church. 
After that revival, he became a noted expert, his opinion on a host of matters sought after by those who recognized his genius. His writings influenced pastors across the English-speaking world, changed the name and the context, and the Jonathan Edwards story represents the aspirations and hopes of many pastors of our generation. Yet, Edwards' greatest example may be uh, what we find in his failure. He proves that pedigree guarantees nothing, neither success nor appreciation. If the greatest theologian in American history can be removed from his pulpit for standing on principle, it can happen to anyone. Edwards' example teaches the powerful lesson that one's legacy is not built upon popularity or lack thereof, but on faithfulness to God and a willingness to be used as God sees fit, whether in fame and fortune or anonymity and sacrifice. Had Edwards not been fired, some of the most important theological works in the last 250 years might not have been written. Setting his reputation aside, consider the fact that Freedom of the Will, written after his dismissal while he labored among the Indians of Stockbridge, became the theological foundation that would help launch the modern missionary movement in England 40 years later. Likewise, it was not Ed- Edwards' pastoral ministry that shaped evangelicalism in the 19th century, but his religious affections and the life of David Brainerd. Today, Edwards' legacy is not measured by his failures, but by his faithfulness. <sighs> that's that's so nice, man. Because uh, I, I don't know if it's an American thing. Maybe it's it's just a world thing. But uh, success and and faithfulness, we mm. think, go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, you think, oh, if we're faithful, things will go well. You know, things will be <clears throat> to which Jesus laughs, <laughs> the most faithful, <laughs> and he was killed. Um, and but so I, I don't know what that is why we why we think that why we tend toward that thinking but um but i do it i know that uh yeah it's in my head even like outside of outside of pastoral ministry just christian life like it, oh if i'm faithful i had a good day today why is this going wrong you know like i, I have that thought as as silly as that is um like i read this morning and i I'm supposed to have more joy than this. Why do I have anger? Um, but I, it's it's some sort of wrong thinking in us that that leads us there. But uh, but all that to say, this line, uh, his legacy is not measured by his failures, but his faithfulness. The second thing that I thought was really good here was when he said, had he not been fired, some of the most significant work wouldn't have been done, um, because that shows like this. Um, this hindrance to ministry, right? Yeah. It's like a this is this giant roadblock, and yet not really. <laughs> like this is what God had had for. Maybe he didn't realize it, you know, and maybe he didn't even realize it after writing all of that. But uh, for all of us who have benefited from his work, uh, we can say, "Thank God that he was fired." You know, <laughs> like, man, that's amazing. So I love that. Yeah, yeah. In, I mean, maybe it's. I guess it's tricky because, like we said, you know, it's like, okay, faithfulness leads to success. When really, if we really boil down the Christian life, faithfulness is success, right? I mean, isn't that all that we can be is faithful? I mean, what more can we be in in Christian life, in our Christian walk? It's all I've got. Uh, It kind of reminded me a little bit um, of, we just did the Paul Washer episode not too long ago, the shocking youth message. And he was like, 
you guys are never going to invite me back here again, but I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, basically, you know? And he never was invited back, right? Like, I mean, that was it. To a lot of people, that could seem like a failure. You know, that's not successful. You know, you had an opportunity to maybe go somewhere. I I guess that happened a few more times, you know, every year or whatever it was. And no invites, or I'm sure there was a lot of other people that maybe had him on their call list to see if he'd come speak, and we're like, not not now. That doesn't seem like success, but he was faithful, right? So isn't that what isn't that what we're looking for right. as Christians? Again, it's all counter what we're used to, what we feel like, what seems right. But and there's there's more to that. That's just one of right. those aspects. But uh, I, I like that it's okay. It's not a let me be faithful and then see how success comes from that. It's no be faithful, and then if you're not quote unquote successful in culture or life or whatever that we're used to success being you're still faithful. Yeah. Like you said, the most faithful, he hung on a cross. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't seem like success, right? <laughs> so I, I like that a lot. Did he not, he didn't get the American dream? You know, like well, he would have, it had been in America, oh, but true. he wasn't. <laughs> um, well, um, so maybe we can categorize it then as short-term versus long-term mm, yeah. success, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, because it reminds me of that story we heard um, from the missions agency where he was like this one guy labored for it's like 25 years uh the church that he planted after he died failed uh never saw a single convert that he knew of right uh worked 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 and and died uh and that was to him the end of his story and and how discouraging that might be Yet, if you look at that city now, it, it has three churches. It has yeah. um, people who have come to faith, uh, you know, kind of in droves. And it all started with his work. He just yeah. didn't really realize it, you yeah. know. And so maybe it's a it's a matter of short term versus long term. Like, is it um, did I get instant gratification? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did I did I see in immediate results? Probably not. I don't know of any good thing that comes that way. Right. Uh, if you think of even building homes, like the the faster is probably the cheaper and not going to last, <laughs> right. you know, and uh, I mean, yeah. I- anything in that category. So short term versus long term, maybe. Yeah, that's good. It's helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. John Newton. Newton. Is this the fig guy? Uh-huh. Yeah, nice. This is written by Tom Schwanda. He says... Newton reminds us that pastoral struggles and doubts are not infrequent or unusual, but the norm. In fact, if we are not experiencing some sort of pastoral tension or conflict, it may well mean we are not attempting anything challenging to encourage the growth of the people we serve. When, not if, problems surface, it is not uncommon to second-guess our decisions or the particular aspect of ministry that either caused or resulted from the trials, But ministers should not read these as signs of God's absence or neglect, but as potential confirmation that we are doing something right. Newton teaches us the critical value of trust in our sovereign God. Realizing his providence is just as active in this day as in Newton's day, this confidence comes from both a commitment to cultivate a vibrant spiritual maturity and a trust in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. If we believe our convictions are biblical— we should seek to be faithful to God, even if it results in conflict or sharp criticism from others. Newton also instructs us in the importance of patience uh, and careful deliberation. 
When feeling trapped in a difficult or painful ministry, some believe the best way out is to jump at the first opportunity that arises and flee. Too many pastors spend a few years in a ministry only to search for a larger, wealthier congregation. This can be dangerous for many reasons. It is difficult for pastors or missionaries to create a healthy ministry if they don't spend enough time getting to know and trust the people they serve and vice versa. Newton served only two churches. Both were long-term ministries, and as indicated earlier, Newton sought the wisdom of trusted friends who could see a difficult situation more objectively than he could. And further, Newton was sensitive not to run ahead of God's timing before he was actually sent. Man, it can be dangerous to critique a person from the distance of history because we don't know all the details. And even as one is prolific as Newton in his diaries, his writing does not reveal everything. For example, some readers might disagree with Newton's patience with Polly, his wife, in not accepting numerous opportunities extended to him outside of the Church of England. He chose to wait until she was ready and depended on her approval in his decisions. While some might question his approach, I see it as more an indication of his wisdom. He was sensitive enough to realize that in healthy marriages, spouses must listen and wait and not force their partners into something before they are ready. Newton had learned humility through his struggles in his slave trading years, which was further refined throughout his ministry. In 1779, Newton's most famous work was published, a hymn that has come to be one of the most famous songs in history, in and outside of the church. It well summarizes the grace every minister needs to run the race of faith with endurance. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. He will my shield and portion be mm. as long as life endures. Man. So good. <laughs> so good. Uh, he, he starts out, and he says, in fact, if we are not experiencing, we being pastors, essentially is what he's talking about, if we are not experiencing some sort of pastoral tension or conflict, it may well mean we are not attempting anything challenging to encourage the growth of the people we serve. Man, and that's, <laughs> we, we were just talking about, like, success, right, and being faithful, and I mean, I, I think a lot of us, especially who have been involved in ministry, have served under or alongside pastors who um, have varying views or approaches to that, I guess, and not, whether good, bad, or indifferent, um, you always see those differences. And it's, it's, it's difficult when you're trying to do something like spread the gospel, share the good news, shepherd a flock, uh, and you feel pushback because you're like, this is the gospel, like this is good like this is the greatest thing in the world why, why isn't this easier you know but i mean we live in a, in a fallen broken world uh inside and outside of the church right i mean even inside the church it's a church full of sinners and so there's going to always be there should always be some struggle there because if there's not what do you what are you doing you know right. i mean you have to put so being it's a fallen world the world's full of sin believers and non-believers alike, there's always going to be a flow in the opposite direction of the flow of the gospel, right? So if it's super windy outside, I'm in you know the West Texas Plains, and wind's blowing to the, I don't know what direction it blows out there, to the east. <laughs> and then I'm trying to go to the west, <laughs> getting my directions right here, like, I'm, I'm, it's going to be difficult, you yeah. know, but I'm I'm getting to where I'm supposed to go. Now, the majority of things are pushing against me. So, you know, you have all the sin in the world. Uh, that's, there's, the majority of the flow of things is going to push against the gospel. That doesn't mean it's not right. That doesn't mean it doesn't lead to, quote unquote, success. Right. Because 
you're doing it for the sake of the gospel, for being faithful, not, well, let me get some numbers. Because if you get some numbers, you're going to turn around and start walking to the east. You know, like you're, <laughs> you're going to get, you're just going to do what's easy. And, and if you're just doing what's easy, like you said, are you really challenging your people to grow? Mm. Most likely not. I mean, yeah. it's why it's called challenging challenging them to grow because it's a challenge right <laughs> but i just i mean that's that's man very uh i guess prevalent in the church you know and and, yeah. and nominal christianity and american christianity it's just no let's just do it's easy you know let me yeah live your best life now you know anyway yeah. i'm not gonna start naming names but just don't just that, go with the flow you know yeah <laughs> as pastors don't go with the flow, you know, yeah. and and we that's easier said than done, obviously, uh, and it can be very discouraging. But again, if you're discouraged and faithful, it's better than being unfaithful and encouraged. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it also <clears throat> it also makes it difficult out in West Texas with all those fans that oh, they have blowing man, against you. Yeah. But at least it keeps it nice and cool out there, though. That's true. Yeah. Very true. Very chilly in West Texas you know, because those fans. Because <laughs> they have to keep the crops. Yeah, so cool. it'll burn up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Farmers have a lot to deal with, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there were a couple of things from here that said, um, struggles and doubts are not infrequent or unusual, but the norm. Uh, it was very encouraging. Um, if we believe our convictions are biblical, which hopefully they are, uh, then we should seek to be faithful to God, even if it results in conflict or sharp criticism from others. Mm. Um, very difficult to walk out in, in actuality, yeah. but um, having done this only a couple of times, it's a it's a very liberating and freeing thing to know this isn't just my idea. Like this is something I I feel the uh, that scripture is is right on, and so here's where we're going to take a stand. Yeah. Um, so I love that. And then uh, Newton was sensitive not to run ahead of God's timing mm. before he was actually sent. Mm. That's a really cool sentence, man. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> how often, how often that's true in my own life. Of, I mean, that's what sin is. Like what we just uh, went through with the beautiful eulogy. Yeah. Uh, hope, hope deferred. So I prefer the immediate. Yeah. And that's that's a good. So yeah. Newton and beautiful eulogy should do a song together. Oh, they should. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, but I, I just thought so much of that was very good. And then. Uh, in, in all of that suffering that he talks about, uh, that, that Newton has gone through, uh, that's where we get through many danger, mm. dangers, toils, and snares I've already come. Yeah. Uh, but he will, my shield and portion, be as long as life endures. Mm. You only get that kind of rich theology in a song if you've gone through that suffering mm-hmm. and that the true dangers there. Yeah. So it's very mm. good. Yeah. Nice. Amazing mm. eulogy. I like it. Oh. <laughs> okay. This chapter is written by Steve Weaver, and it's on Andrew Fuller. Gotcha. Although Andrew Fuller is a long-neglected figure, studies about him are enjoying a renaissance. William Carey, the father of modern missions, has understandably received much more interest academically and popularly. Lesser known is the circle of friends who served with Carey to awaken the English Baptists of the late 18th century to the cause of global missions. Chief among these friends was Andrew Fuller, a pastor, theologian, who was one of the most prominent polemicists among 
evangelicals at the turn of the 19th century. Fuller, whom Charles Spurgeon called the greatest theologian of the century, was unquestionably the theologian behind the modern missionary movement. Yet, even among those who have become acquainted with his theology, few know Fuller's faithfulness throughout a lifetime of heartbreak. And the the chapter deals with all of those heartbreaks. So he loses children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll focus on just one of them. Heartbreak of the loss of a wife. Another source of heartbreak was the loss of his first wife, Sarah. This occurred in August 1792, although for three months prior she seemed to have suffered from a form of dementia or Alzheimer's. As anyone who has faced this hardship within their family or with a church member can attest, this is a dreadful disease. Alzheimer's has often been called the long goodbye. On July 10th, 1792, Fuller writes in his diary, My family afflictions almost overwhelmed me, and what is yet before me I know not. For about a month past, the affliction of my dear companion has been extremely heavy. The day before, he had written in more detail in a letter to his friend John Ryland, My domestic trials are exceedingly great, far, very far beyond what I have ever met with before. I was taken ill last Friday, July 7th, with a pain under my left breast and was bled on Saturday. Yesterday, Lord's Day, I could not engage in anything, nor could I have done so if Mr. Hall, who providentially was in town, had not been there. I feel better this morning, though I have had but little more than a two hours sleep. You need not speak of it, but Mrs. Fuller has not slept at all last night. And through the effect of her hysterical complaints, she is at this time as destitute of reason as an infant. My heart has not much sunk because I look upon the derangement of her mind to be temporary, but the Lord knows what is before us. Mm. Unfortunately, Fuller's hope that his wife's mental state would be temporary was not to be fulfilled. On July 25th, Fuller cries out to God in the safe confines of his diary, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. The afflictions in my family seem too heavy for me. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. My thoughts are broken off and all my prospects seem to be perished. During this time, Fuller drew encouragement from Scripture. He specifically cited biblical passages providing him support such as all things work together for good in Romans 8. God is even God even our own God shall bless us Psalm 67 and it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed Lamentation 3:22 Throughout July and August of 1792 Sarah's mind was almost constantly confused During these times she considered her husband and her children her worst enemies Andrew Gunton Fuller Fuller's son from his second marriage records her deportment during this period She imagined that he was not her husband but an impostor who had entered the house and taken possession of all that belonged to her, supposing at other times that she had wandered from ho- she had wandered from home and had fallen among strangers. Her frequent attempts to escape rendered it necessary that she be watched day and night. Mm-hmm. Two weeks before Sarah died, however, she had a period of clarity, much to the delight of her husband. Fuller describes their exchange in a letter to Sarah's father. She had one of the happiest intervals of any during her affliction. She had been lamenting on account of this imposter that was come into her house and would not give her the keys. She tried for two hours to obtain them by force, in which time she exhausted all her own strength and almost mine. Not being able to obtain her point, as I was necessarily obliged to resist her in this matter, she sat down and wept, threatening me that God would surely judge me for treating a poor, helpless creature in such a manner. I also was overcome with grief. I wept with her. The sight of my tears seemed to awaken her recollection. With her eyes fixed upon me, she said, Why, are you indeed my husband? 
Indeed, my dear, I am. Oh, if I thought you were, I could give you a thousand kisses. Indeed, my dear, I am your own dear husband. She then seated herself upon my knee and kissed me several times. My heart dissolved with mixture of grief and joy. Her senses were restored, and she talked as rationally as ever. On August 23rd, Fuller lost his wife of 16 years. Mm. Poor soul. <clears throat> Fuller writes, what she often said is now true. She was not at home. I am not her husband. These are not her children. But she has found her home. A home, a husband, and a family better than these. Fuller had peace because he knew that Sarah was at peace. As difficult as this trial was, the most difficult still awaited Fuller. It's a, a beautiful story, though, mm. to be in the midst of what he calls overwhelming, just suffering, and then there's this brief moment of, and, and I love that he says, like, it's like my tears gathered her mind together and, and the sight of them. And then so she said, oh, are you are you my husband? <laughs> if you were, I could give you a thousand kisses. And then that's exactly what happens. And uh, so that's beautiful. And that's, I mean, it, just God's grace to uh, to him to, I mean, to, to have experienced that, but let alone pass that down for all of us to read. Um, but then this part, like what she often said is now true. That she wasn't at home. Mm. That I'm not her husband. That these are not her children, but she has found her home. That's, that's so much faithfulness. That mm -hmm. is, golly, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Got a little emotional listening yeah. to you read that, man. That's the the faithfulness there uh, to stick that out. And that's, so you and I, um, for those who are watching this episode, we're not in our typical studio. Uh, we're on the road. And on our drive down here, we were talking about... Um, like the intricacies of the human body and how amazing our designer is. And so like hearing that and then that story of uh, at the end when she's like, you know, it's like this, all this that she's just, dra she's being drugged through of this Alzheimer's and not knowing who is who and who she is or anything and Fuller having to, to suffer with her through that. But then at the very end, like to be like, oh, here's a little bit of relief. I don't know that that's, I don't know if that's a common thing with Alzheimer's or, you know, I'm not a neurologist or any of this stuff. Like, but part of me thinks that there's, there's probably some science behind that, but then behind that science is the designer. Yeah. And so like, it's like, man, that was, like you said, it's God's grace. That was God. Like I brought you through all this suffering and you remained faithful through the suffering here you go. You know, here's, you've made it through. Here's this. And not only do I give you some comfort while she's still here, once she's gone, continue to give you comfort because you were faithful in knowing that, and this isn't her home. You aren't, you aren't her husband. You aren't yeah. her kids. She's where she was meant to be. <laughs> just, oh man, gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, mm. Like my mind can't even capture the, the, absolute impact it must have on someone who has a family member uh, with Alzheimer's to know that who they were is not lost. I mean, not on, from an earthly perspective even, like, mm -hmm. because we see that there's some somewhat of a, that people can awaken back to who they were, but um, even, but from a, from a heavenly perspective, right? It's, 
who she was was not lost. It's now far greater. Yeah. And that's, yeah. there has to be so much hope there for, for Christians <clears throat> who have family members that are suffering and that are also Christians. And I can't imagine going through something like this without that kind of hope. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Mm. We're not touching on obviously their entire lives. We're trying to give these little snippets of their snippets. Um, <laughs> And so if you want to read more about him, obviously there's so much more to Andrew Fuller, but yeah. uh, that was one story we wanted to give you. Mm-hmm. The next one was written by Randall J. Gruendyke about Charles Simeon. He writes, Simeon clung tightly to the essential means of grace, the word and prayer, and his everyday schedule reflected that priority. While not an early riser by nature, Simeon became one by choice for the purpose of prayerfully saturating himself in scripture. A former roommate and witness of Simeon's daily routine once attested that he regularly rose at 4 a.m. Years later, Matthew Preston, one of Simeon's curates, observed the same, noting he rose very early for that purpose, retiring early to rest. Devoting the first four hours of his day to the Lord, (laughs) the privilege of a lifelong bachelor, Simeon was able to prayerfully consider his life circumstances in light of God's word. Concerning the hostile congregation of Holy Trinity Church, he reflects, In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this, The servant of the Lord must not strive. 2 Timothy 2 It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the isles, almost forsaken, but I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. Without such a reflection, I should have sunk under the burden. From his sermons, it is clear that one of Simeon's favorite verses was Psalm 81.10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. In the midst of his... Uh, of his hardship, Simeon recommended that believers walk close with God, read his word much, and pray much. Mm. So he quotes Psalm 81 there, uh, talking about being b- brought out of the land of Egypt. And then he mentioned uh, in that quote from him, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. <laughs> like, we know how long it, take for them, it took for them to come out of the land of Egypt, right? Like, their faithfulness and patience. Two of the things we probably struggle with the most, (laughs) but two of the most important things in the Christian walk, be faithful and be patient in your faithfulness. (laughs) Like being faithful is hard enough as it is, right? Like as a Christian, as a, as a fallen human being who struggles with sin daily, but also be patient with whatever God has you going through. And that's what, I mean, it's, there's a, it's not cliche but just typical you know oh, don't pray for patience because you know you know you know you'll get what you pray for or whatever like but but i mean we, we should pray for that yeah. not just pray for that but li- live it out you know i mean if if we're praying for patience if we're not praying for patience seek to be patient yeah. and man again god's timing and not ours like that's yeah. again god doesn't have timing so <laughs> again not to dive too deep far into that but uh <clears throat> We, we can't um, overestimate our patience or underestimate the patience either, I guess. <laughs> like, just be as patient as it takes. And, yeah. and, you know, 
if if you say, hey man, you know, come over Wednesday and let's grill some burgers. Oh, come on, man, that sounds good. You know, okay, well, I I, I want to do that right now, but right. I'll be patient. I'll wait till Wednesday. Right. I know Wednesday is coming. Right. <laughs> With God, it's not like, <clears throat> oh, I know this is happening this day or this is happening this year, decade, or lifetime, or maybe not in my lifetime. You yeah. know, I mean, there's so many times where our patience, the the fruit of our patience, that is built upon our faithfulness. We don't see that fruit. We yeah. don't see it. Others may see it. Hopefully yeah. others see it. <laughs> right. But, I mean, if nobody else, Christ sees it. Right? Yeah. And that's oh. what matters more than anything else. So, so good. Man, just put you on the fridge again. <laughs> uh, yeah. the It goes against like every, I, I want to say, I keep saying American. Well, like <laughs> against everything humanly because we think like um, there has to be a resolution, right? There has to be a it can't just be for for lack of better terms that i can come up with like there can't just it can't just be in limbo right it has yeah. to either happen or not happen it can't just be out there like nothing's happening and yet that's often the case in god's kingdom is that uh there's not a not a resolution that we can see right now but god is working it out and and so the call is to be patient and wait and that's it, it it can be, I think, terrifying, but that's exactly what faith is. It's, yeah. I, I'm I'm actually staking my entire eternity on this, <laughs> yeah. uh, and but but where else where else will I go? Yeah. And so I mean that that's, I think that's the the patience we should have is, um, this might turn out well, this might not. Where else will I go? Yeah. You know, like I, uh, I literally I cannot do anything moving forward because I don't have an understanding of should I go this direction or this direction, but I will wait yeah. because if I know God is, is working something out, you know, and that's, yeah. that has to be, I think given from God is a gift from God. For sure. Um, but it's a, it's a great reminder. Yeah. Very good. Well, Charles Simeon. I like it. <clears throat> okay. Next. We have a chapter written by Zach Eswine on some guy named C.H. Spurgeon. Hmm. Do you think the H is... Ch- Spurgeon? Yeah. <laughs> they just didn't spell <laughs> out the rest of it. Yeah, and they're like, so. oh, these must be his initials. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So talking about his, uh, his depression or what he called it, his sorrows. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon says that depression is more of a misfortune than a fault. For these reasons, there are times when prayers, promises, scripture reading, counsel, and preaching are not enough to help us. Not because these gifts from God are without power in Jesus to relieve and heal us, but because the medicine prescribed doesn't fit the source of the problem. Soul remedies for bodily ailments are necessary, but incomplete. What does this mean? Those of us with bodily origins for our depression can follow Spurgeon's lead as he sought remedy and help. Number one, we need to adjust our work rhythms and expectations. Spurgeon resisted this change at first, but gradually began to take regular breaks for months at a time in Mentone, France. For the sake of his health and ministry, such breaks were wise. He also used regular hot baths to relax his body and mind. Number two, we need to build into our lives regular rhythms with God's creation. Communion with nature eased the gloom and fatigue of the fog, frost and damp of London agitated amid the uh, pain of work. The cold, wet days of winter acted upon his sensitive frame. Dull and dreary days depressed him. His urban ministry required rural retreats to keep him flourishing. Number three, we need laughter. 
Our trouble isn't like the trouble of those who cannot cry and resist the sanity of sadness. Our trouble is that we cannot rest from seeing beauty in all beauty's feisty, God-given refusal to quit when things go dark. On the advice of Proverbs 17.22, Spurgeon intentionally sought out stories of good humor and gracious strength. He read them, collected them, and told them. Number four, we need to pay attention to how food and drink affect our melancholy. Spurgeon spoke of how he often had to of how he had to learn about the effects of what he ate. And number five, we need to use medicine not as a cure or as our go-to, but as one teammate with these others, uh, but as one teammate with these others to help us wisely navigate the sorrows of bodies, our bodies prompt until Jesus comes again. Medicine is like the sixth person on a starting team of five. When a starter needs a breather, the sixth person comes off the bench to support and maintain the team for significant minutes. <laughs> The, we even talked about it, uh, before, it was either before or after the interview with Wilson of, um, how, how the body, bodily and spiritual is, is connected. Like mm-hmm. there's, you can't, we can't escape that fact. And so sometimes, uh, like I loved it because Spurgeon had depression, what he called his sorrows. And, um, for him it was, well, let me look at what I'm doing. Physically, like, let me, mm-hmm. let me just look at, because if I'm, if I'm in this melancholy and, uh, I am, I'm reading scripture, I'm praying, but nothing's getting any better, but I'm also having a box of donuts every morning and, you know, so on so that might be extreme, but, um, I'm also not taking care of, of any part of my body. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some connection there. And so he just drew out some practical examples of, we need laughter. We need sunshine and creation we need what well, i love he says uh get out to the to the rural areas you know like uh which we live in so it's wonderful um in which we are we are in <laughs> yeah. uh, but do things like that like r- refresh your body mm-hmm. so that uh so that in the way that god has connected it that we don't necessarily understand or, or think about all the time uh when your body is r- relaxed and refreshed there's a spiritual aspect to that yeah. and so uh I, I love that that's in here and I love that that's not just a, because of course there's like a, a common fad now post COVID 2020 of like everybody is a, um, a fitness instructor on Instagram or something like that. But, uh, no, this is as old as, as scripture yeah. of, uh, the take like self care, self respect, self, uh, I don't want to say self-love, but kind of <laughs> in that if, if you take care of these bodily aspects, it, it has a spiritual, mm-hmm. um, outflow, overflow. Yeah. It has a sp- flow. They're connected <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I don't know how a better way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. I love how, I mean, Aspergian obviously being one of the greatest theologians ever, you know, um, who dealt with depression and what he called his sorrows isn't saying well you know if you're dealing with stuff you know if if you if you have depression just lock yourself in your room and pray all day until your depression's gone right like it it kind of and i'm I'm gonna expand on that a little bit i'm not saying don't pray for your for for things but it reminded me of i think probably most people have seen the like the comic i don't know if it's like a comic strip or whatever it is where it's like the dude on the island and he's praying you know oh you know god save me and then a boat comes by and like hey do you need some help 
no, I'm waiting on God to send somebody to save me or whatever, you know, and the plane flies by. I'm waiting on God to save me. You know, it's like, he's giving you these things. You know, and, and Spurgeon is like, go out in nature, laugh a little bit, take care of yourself, take care of your body, use medicine, use that, that these are gifts that God has given us through man by his, his ultimate wisdom to help us in these things. And so it's, I mean, yes, absolutely first step for everything, especially our trials and our sorrows, whether it's depression or whatever else, pray, pray about it. But like you said, take some steps, like be, be active in what you are doing to, to supplement, I guess is kind of a good word to put that, you know, what, what you're, what you're getting through scripture and prayer and don't, don't neglect the things that God has clearly given us to help us through these things. You know, I mean, like you said, go out in the rural areas, go look at the trees, go look at the mountains, look at the stars, laugh, you know, tell some jokes, read some books, eat some hot salsa and tell some dad jokes. (laughs) Or don't, or don't, (laughs) or don't do that. That that will lead to depression. (laughs) But I I love that, you know, I mean, he's, he's just laying out, I mean, and this is all just super, just realistic everyday things, you know, for the most part, just, just take care of yourself, you know, don't, don't eat a box of donuts every morning. I guess I'll stop that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. Yeah. And obviously we don't mean to say um, going too far in the other extreme is, is the better way to go. For sure. Uh, there's, there's unhealth in, in being extremely healthy. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like it, yeah. there's yeah. unhealth in that because it's a, uh, it's just too far in the other direction. There's a there's a happy medium, mm-hmm. and that's going to look different for each believer. Yeah. Well, uh, and like you said, the the physical affects the spiritual, and it's the other way around too. So our spiritual yeah. affects the physical. So we can't just say, "Oh, let me take care of myself physically, and then that'll help spiritually." Well, let me take care of myself spiritually, and that'll also help the physical as well. Right. So there's a give and take both yeah. ways, one of the same, two yeah. sides of the coin. I don't know. <laughs> You love all those things. <laughs> okay. This is our last quote. Uh, this chapter was written by Ben Rogers. And again, we, did I already say this? We haven't, we haven't gotten to everybody, and we won't. Yeah. Um, but, but, so it's 12 faithful men, but we haven't gotten to all 12. So just a few. Of yeah, just eight men. or yeah. seven of those. But uh, <laughs> this one is about J.C. Ryle. Mm. And this is actually just a, a quote. So he's, he's uh, it's, it's this lesson that he's learned from all of the suffering uh, that he's gone through in life. And, and he writes, I believe that God never expects us to feel no suffering or pain when it pleases him to visit us with affliction. There are great mistakes upon this point. Submission to God's will is perfectly compatible with intense and keen suffering under the chastisements of that will. Troubles in fact not felt are no troubles at all. To feel trouble deeply and yet submit to it patiently is that which is required of a Christian. I, I butchered that. Let me say that again. To feel trouble deeply and yet submit to it patiently is that which is required of a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A man may submit cheerfully to a severe surgical operation in the full belief that it is his duty to submit and that the operation is the, the likeliest way to secure health. But it does not follow that he does not feel the operation most keenly, even at the moment that he is most submissive. It was a wise saying of a holy Baxter when he was dying of a painful disease. He says, I groan, but I do not grumble. Mm. I ask my children and anyone who may read this autobiography not to forget this. 
I ask them to remember that I felt most acutely my father's ruin, my exile from Cheshire with the destruction of all my worldly prospects, and I've never ceased to feel them for that day, uh, from that day to this. But I would have known, but I would have them know that I was submissive to God's will and had a firm and deep conviction that all was right, though I could not see it and feel it at the time. Hit the rewind button and go listen to that again. <laughs> Watch that again. Oh, golly, man. I believe that God never expects us to feel no suffering or pain when it pleases him to visit us with affliction. What? <laughs> like, how do, how do we wrap our head around that? Man, and I mean, it really, you know, if we're talking about being faithful and enduring suffering and and however suffering looks in, in our lives um it comes down to is god sovereign right i mean if if we truly believe that god is fully sovereign or just so- sovereign <laughs> is there a difference I like i've said this exact thing, same thing before sovereign in all things then how or why would we push back against something that we know is of god even if it's suffering right. <laughs> like that's a dumb question i know why because <laughs> we don't like it right, right, right we right. don't want to suffer none of us want to suffer but as a christian and on this sanctification walk i hope that one day i would look i would enjoy suffering for god more than i would not suffering for myself right yeah uh, I don't, maybe one day, <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. Maybe in some small moments and some small times, it's, mm, I can deal with this. Yeah. But the big afflictions, ah, man, but, but hopefully one day I can, I can suffer for him. And you know what, God, thank you for this suffering. Yeah. Whatever this is going to produce, I don't know. Maybe I won't know until I see you, but thanks for it. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, to say... To feel to feel trouble and pain deeply and yet submit to it patiently, yeah. that uh, is that which is required of a Christian. And yeah. then to say like the crescendo of greatest pain yet also greatest submission, like the, they're there together, mm. is like it, it makes most sense when he, when yeah. it, you know brings up in a surgery, you're literally being cut open as you are being <laughs> most submissive, and that's yeah. so the greatest pain is there, mm. but also. If you are if you're trusting that it's going to help you, you're submitting to that, right? Yeah. And and that's a a beautiful illustration that I've never mm. considered before. Yeah. Um, and then to hear this from Baxter, I groan, but I do not grumble. Oh, man, like I I feel the pain, but I'm not going to complain. Yeah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um. Yeah. I I mean, th- there was so much good there that. Uh, if we could, we could read the whole chapter, but we yeah. won't. Um, but I, what do you say to something? Like yeah. That? Just, yeah. Just sit so back good. and enjoy yeah. all of that. If you, mm. if you haven't yet, now go back and rewind a, a second yeah. time and, and listen to it <laughs> Or again. a third time, even if yeah. you have the second time, because it's really good. <laughs> it is. And on that note, we can, uh, we can close out this chapter. Mm. Uh, Obviously, stay tuned to see if the uh, the producers, the studio executives, allow a third <laughs> season. Um, 
we'll keep you posted on that if if, if we're renewed for a yeah. third season. But uh, anything else to close out the season? No, man. Just go buy all these books. <laughs> this last one and all the other ones too. Yeah, they're really, really good. And the songs and the sermons. Just go buy them all. Just yeah, check yeah. them all out. Yeah. Look at them. Do you have a yeah. favorite from the season? Uh, this might be this right. this last one. Twelve Faithful Men. What else? What's on that? Is this all? Man, mm-hmm. we had some really good ones. Yeah. I, I mean, I liked when I don't desire God. Um, the book. I, yeah. I didn't like it when I didn't. Yeah, they were all all really good, yeah. and then the songs and this, I don't, yeah, I'm just rambling because everything was good. Uh, Unbroken, yeah, was wonderful. Yeah. Um, encouragement by Chansky, that one was very encouraging. One of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one was awful. Yeah, full, full, full of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well. Uh, to close out, we just wanted to say thank you for, for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, thank you for an amazing season. Like I said, we aren't super sure if we'll be able to make a season three. We'll try our best to convince the studio executives. But mm-hmm. we can say that no matter what, we are thankful. Hopefully until next time, this has been Aaron Alvarado and me, Jacob Simmons. and We are made for another world. This is written by Ben Rogers. Nice. Is that mm. the guy from Ben and Skin? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he was. Is that really his name, Ben Rogers? Uh-huh. It is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Though, is that they will suffer. I'm going to start over again. I don't know why I'm all <laughs> over the place. I did read this earlier, and it was fine. <laughs> uh, and I think it's important to... Perfect timing. Man. We're out in the rural areas, in case you can't hear <laughs> the donkeys in the background. <laughs> Good work. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha.